Welcome to the Ordinals Podcast, produced by Ord Media, featuring the top builders, projects, and investors pioneering Bitcoin inscription protocols and the future of digital artifacts. Welcome everyone to the Ordinals Podcast. I'm your host, Ragnar Leafracer. In today's episode, we get to learn a lot about how Ordinals works behind the scenes, how how the GitHub actually stays alive and is maintained. We get to hear about the early days of Bitcoin Ordinals. Today, our guest is Raf, or Raf Raf, as some people know him as well. Raf, welcome to the Ordinals Podcast. Yeah, hello. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so great to have you. Um, you are such a critical component of Ordinals. So you are the lead maintainer of the Ordinals GitHub. So Ordinals. Uh, slash ord right and so that is so important and there's so much that you do there but i think for your average person they don't really understand what that means to be the maintainer so Mm -hmm. just to start off on a broad level what does a maintainer do yeah sure so on a high level a maintainer is basically responsible for the repository um, where all the code for for order is stored and this means on a day-to-day basis I look at PRs. PRs are um, pull requests, which means is anyone willing uh, to change the code base, adding a feature, adding anything, uh, they open a pull request, and then I look at it and review it. And if I like it, and if it confirms to our standards, then then I will merge it. Uh, another thing is, of course, issues. If there's like something broken with Ord, um, then I try to answer questions uh, and try to fix them. And I just have a very like high-level overview of where the code is, what has to be done, and kind of I can kind of set the direction of of, uh, of the code base. Okay, great, great overview. So you do several things. So what what would happen if you disappeared tomorrow? An alien abducted you, took him to the moon base. What would happen to Ordinals and to GitHub? Yeah. So. I mean, I am the the lead maintainer, but there's also other people that can commit to the database, um, uh, to the to the to the repository. And if I would like, in the worst case, if I and everyone that has like has commit access to the, the the repository leaves, it's open source code, so it's still somewhere on the internet. The whole code, somebody can just take it, copy it, or uh, in the open source or generally in, in coding, you call it forking the repository, mm-hmm. and then they can continue work on it. And then people would just switch over to that fork and use that. Um, but yeah, as I said, there's also other people um, who have like who can merge commits or uh, merge uh, pull requests. Um, one of them is Casey, of course, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, Ordinally. Um, but yeah, even if we all disappear, like the, the idea, the code, the DNA of, of Ord is, is in the internet. Somebody can just continue work on it. And that's kind of the, the beauty of, of open source. It's uh, very uh, res- resilient. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's good that you explain that because on one hand, you know, people go to the Ordinals GitHub. They, there's forks and stuff, but this is really where all the action is. The debates are, issues are solved, mm-hmm. where the top minds are. So it's it's very important. Yet, as you pointed out, if the whole team disappeared, Ordinals would live on. It would be disruptive for a while. Things would slow down. But as it stands today, I mean, you 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 guys are it. Um, okay, so that's what a maintainer does. You kind of gave an explanation overall of what of what you do. So when I look at your GitHub, there's like a breakdown of, of what's done. So I see 
48% commits, 28% code review, 18% pull requests, and 6% <laughs> issues. Now, you know, those aren't perfect, probably reflect yeah. exactly what it is, but let's go through commits and let's start off, okay, for those who are totally not technical, mm -hmm. what is a commit and what do you yeah. do in terms of commits for the GitHub and ordinals? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the profile you just showed is like my profile. It's, uh, and, and on GitHub, if you go on my profile, you can kind of see what I do across all the repositories I own. And uh, you see the 44% commits is that of the things I do or, or that GitHub kind of tracks, 44% of those are commits. Um, and since I'm working mostly on ORD, that's basically where most of the commits, commits land. But that, what is a commit? Um, a commit is just a, a, a change to the code. So it's a, um, a, a smallest, it's the smallest change that, that, that you kind of merge into, um, merge into the code base. Um, it's kind of, um, yeah, this, like how you can imagine it, like this gets into how Git works is kind of this, this tree and every node is kind of a commit. And if you merge something, you take a, a node and then you make it, uh, bring it into kind of the main branch. It's what you call the main or the master branch. And a commit is just that kind of a, a change basically. And um, commits means that I write code and I commit that code. Um, that's that's what the commit part of, of the profile tells me. Um, yeah. Um, what else was there? What what else? So, um, yeah. So that so that's commit. So someone could read. Okay. So let's that then goes into um, code review. It says twenty eight percent, but I know this is across everything you do. So yeah, what does it mean when there's code review? So yeah, code review is what I was talking about before. If somebody opens a pull request, um, I will have a look at it. So this means I will read through the code. I will comment on the code, like if I like something or do not like something. Um, and every kind of comment I do, I can then request a change. Or if I like everything, I can approve it. And all these kinds of actions is what kind of GitHub tracks and then puts it under the, under the banner of uh, code review. Um, I don't know exactly how the metric works, but like, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it shows that I do also a lot of uh, code review, which is a big part of being a maintainer, um, just reading a lot of code as well. Um, so, yeah. And, and what percentage would you say is like code that you write versus code that you review versus things that you merge? Do you have an mm -hmm. approximate breakdown of, of what that is? Um, I mean, I think I commit more than I do code review. If you do, like, if you take lines of code, I think I, I definitely commit more than I uh, review um, because I'm kind of the lead maintainer right now. And um, this is kind of the, the main job, kind of making the most changes because I'm also the one who has the best overview of how things can change, how things can be done. So it's very easy for me to make changes. Uh, most of the time when I make a change, I also don't just like merge it. I ask some of my colleagues or other people to review my code as well. So um, my code is also reviewed, just like not reviewed by me, by, then by Casey, by, by Very Ordinally, or by some other person who is, you know, interested in the GitHub and, and leaves the review. And I always, always appreciate people uh, leaving a review, also if, it's not, also if it's just a partial review, like any kind of uh, feedback is, is very welcome. And uh, so, yeah, that's basically... Um, how that works. Yeah. So it's so fascinating to watch this. It's, it reminds me of, of a heart, of a beating heart, 
where you have all sorts of different things coming in and out, flowing like blood into the repository and into GitHub. And some things just flow in and then they flow out. You never see them again. Other things really, you know, stick stick there and really become part of it. So it's a fascinating dynamic process. Me as a non-developer to go in and get feedback and read what other people are, are suggesting. Some things I understand, other things I don't. Uh, so it's so fascinating to see. It's, it's all the work behind the scenes, or you could say it's sort of like the engine in your car that, that you don't always look at, but is, is there. So anyone who's not active in GitHub, if you're even if you're not technical, I highly recommend you go in there and just see what this process is like. So, yeah. so, so Raf, you do, obviously, this is obviously important that you review the code, merge things. Um, to what extent can you just make a decision yourself? And when are there times when you need to have others you kind of consult with Casey or with Ordinali or, or anyone else, whether some, something should be committed or not. I mean, generally any sort of code change, um, that is like non-trivial, like if it's a, you know, grammar mistake in the documentation, I think I can merge that with, without review, but anything that's non, uh, like trivial goes through more than one pair of eyes. Um, so everything is, or at least we try to like, then if I do the code JSON, somebody else looks at it and we want to get as many kind of people looking at the code as, as possible. So that's um, not only to check that it's correct, but more importantly, so that people working with the code can see the progress and know how the code has changed so that you can continue kind of like updating everyone's kind of mental model of how the code works. Um, so yeah, not only like for correctness, but also kind of like keeping this kind of knowledge in people's head. So all the code reviewers kind of still know what is happening, uh, kind of just keeping up to date with, with the changes. So if they want to make a change, they can also make it uh, more easily. Um, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so of all the things that have happened in Ordinals, what has been maybe the, the code that has required the most review, that required the mm -hmm. most thought, that was like the most even consequential, that yeah, maybe yeah. took the longest? of everything yeah if i think about it like one of the the trickiest part of course is building transactions that are ordinal aware so um i mean for the viewers who don't really know how ordinals work it's basically a, a sequencing of all the single satoshi assigned sequence numbers to single satoshis and you kind of have to keep track where they are like normal bitcoin doesn't care about that so you have to kind of build a layer in between that is aware oh where is which satoshi and where is which inscription and um, specifically, there's this one file, I think it's called the transaction builder um, in, in, the, in the repository. And it kind of takes all of these different variables and then it builds a transaction out of it. And it's uh, very tricky. And I remember we met, did like we, we wrote a lot of tests to kind of and tested every small part of it. Um, and I remember that was a lot of uh, work trying to, to get that to work and also making it finding all the different edge cases and um, generally like the, the high level approach that we, uh, is, is, is a, an approach called test driven development, which means that when you want to make a change, the first thing you kind of do is you write a test that tests this change that fails. Um, and hmm. then you write the feature. So you change the code, write the feature until the kind of the test pass. And then you go back and refactor, which means you make the code cleaner, more readable, and then you have this loop of like testing, seeing that it's correct, refactoring, testing again, and then you, this is kind of the, the, the test-driven development loop. 
Um, that's generally how we've 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 approached kind of building Ord. Um, so, and for for now, I'm I'm very happy with that approach. Sometimes there's difficulties, like you write a test, which kind of tests always fixate the structure of of code, and then you want to refactor, but then the test doesn't really work with the refactor code. So then you also have to also rewrite the test, and it can slow down development, like it can get kind of cumbersome. But especially if you're working with very complex things. Um, where there's a lot of moving parts, like tests give you kind of a reassurance that the thing you're doing is correct. Especially like if you come back to it a week later and you're like, I don't know what the hell I did here. But mm -hmm. if you have tests, you can see, ah, okay, the things I wanted to be true are still true. Um, so yeah, it's like the pros and cons. So it, it makes development slower, but it makes it less error prone in the long term. Um, yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's like a trade-off, but I'm, I'm happy with that approach. Yeah, and this transaction builder, I think, is what you said it's called. When did that start? Is this ongoing? Is it done? And and how much time has it taken to to do that? I mean, transaction builder just was a small example I had in mind where we had to test a lot. Um, the transaction builder specifically was built for the wallet. So um, the first thing, kind of an ordinal that was built, was by Casey and uh, his former apprentice called Liam. And they kind of built the Explorer just for ordinals. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I started like talking to Casey and collaborating with him, that was, I think, uh, last August, um, I kind of was tasked to build the wallet. So make actually being able to actually send and receive mm -hmm. uh, ordinals and, and inscriptions. Um, and yeah, I think the transaction builder was started like probably September or October. That's the first time we, we uh, uh, created that file. And then continuously kind of iterating on it until it is where it is now. Um, so yeah. Okay. What a lot of people need to understand as as lead maintainer, it's not like you work for a company. It's not like you work for Microsoft and they pay you full time to be the maintainer, right? Yeah. So yeah, let's, yeah. let's talk about. So I want to start. That's the main point, but I want to go backwards in time to explain how you got here because. Obviously, to be able to do what you do, you have to have detailed understanding and knowledge of how the code works, but yet you have to be able to see the whole picture to know how the pieces go together. And you have to kind of know the different moving parts and how they come together. And you also have to prioritize. So it's, this isn't something that just happens overnight. So let's go back a year ago. So I think you said you got started in Ordinals July, July or August. So how did you first hear about Ordinals and then how did you kind of get involved? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think first time I heard about it, like I was hanging out on Twitter. Um, I had followed Casey for a while and I saw that he was working on this Ordinals thing. And I had also looked at the repo back then, but it was written in Rust. That's the programming language we use. And at that time, I didn't know any Rust. And I was like, ah, I don't have time, but I would love to like learn Rust and kind of let it, I forgot about it. And a couple of months later, I saw again, like Casey talking about it and saying, oh, we finished the Explorer. You can now explore ordinals. I was like, ah, this is so cool. And then uh, I started like looking at the repo in earnest and started, was like, okay, fuck it. Let's, let's learn some Rust. So I sat down for like two weeks, learned Rust. And then I started contributing to the code base, just um, making small changes at first. Um, and then out of that, um, at some point me and Casey were writing and then out of that kind of became a kind of working relationship. So, 
Um, Casey is a very experienced open source developer. Um, he has had a, has a long, uh, long track record of building like open source tools and also in Rust. And I saw an opportunity to learn Rust from someone who knows a lot of Rust. And so I was like, okay, like I would love to just like, yeah, collaborate with him and work with him um, to, to properly learn Rust. And yeah, and out of that, um, kind of, we started just regularly sitting down uh, during the week. Like for me, it was in the evening because I'm in, in Germany. For him, it was in the morning. And then we would like code for like six, seven hours. Um, we would share our screens. Um, so I would, uh, through Discord, so we were sitting in Discord, he was sharing his screen, I was sharing my screen. I have two screens, one on top, one on bottom. I was coding on the bottom and I saw his screen on top. And then we, sometimes we coded together. So kind of pair programming is what it's called, where one person codes and the other one is kind of responsible for looking for documentation. Uh, but sometimes we'd also just work on separate features and just, you know, um, work on separate things. And then every time I had a question, I could be like, Hey, Casey, how do I solve this? And he would just look at his screen and was like, ah, oh, yeah, you have to do that, that, that. Um, it was a very, um, fun time. I had a lot of, and I learned very quickly because I could immediately, if I got stuck, I could immediately mm -hmm. like ask him and be like, Hey, how do you do this? What's the rust way of doing this? Um, so yeah, it was a very cool experience and yeah, now, um, I'm the lead maintainer. Um, kind of because I know the code very intimately, um, worked on it in a long time. And I, I have, after Casey, I think the best overview of where things are, how to change things, and also kind of the, the long-term uh, idea. I understand kind of what the vision is and how to get there or, um, yeah, possible steps to get there. Yeah, so that's, Rust is a not easy language to learn from what I've come to understand. And so when you say you learned in two weeks or it was interesting to you, there must be a lot of motivation, especially since obviously, you know, you weren't getting paid last year to dive into this and to learn Rust. And you said you were working, I think you said like six, seven, eight hours on this. So what is it about this last like 12 months ago or so and, and sooner that for you was worth doing this work, learning Rust, getting involved, coding, quote unquote, for free of all the projects that you can do. And I, you could probably do several things, but what struck you as important and interesting about ordinals? Because this is, again, a year ago when, I mean, few people heard about it or knew about it. So yeah. why was it compelling to you? I mean, I, I was always kind of uh, in, into, into Bitcoin. Um, I had like, you know, running your own node, getting into all of it, reading up onto it. Uh, I had contributed to like small stuff um, in like lightning, like very small things like lightning address servers, things. Um, and I was always kind of interested in doing something and um, something with Bitcoin in, in, in Bitcoin. And this, so I kind of naturally gravitated towards this because I saw an opportunity to, to learn and code on top of Bitcoin. Um, and that was kind of my, my, my primary motivation, um, kind of just working with on Bitcoin and working with Casey, um, because I saw in Casey, someone who could, you know, really m mentor me or kind of really show me how, how programming works because programming is very much, um, it's almost like a, not like, what is it called? Like. Like it's an apprenticeship so you have like you learn in university the basics and the abstract theory but when you actually sit down you have to kind of learn the tools of your craft you have to use 
like how, which editor to use, what kind of command line tools to use, how to think and navigate code, how to use version control. Like there's a lot of kind of tools and like a tacit knowledge that is involved in, in, in programming. And so, yeah, that's kind of my, my primary motivation was uh, learning all of that through um, uh, like, like with Casey and at the same time also working on something adjacent to what I'm interested in. Um, yeah. yeah. Good, good timing. Um, yeah, a lot, obviously people know Casey is talented, uh, you know, developer and contributor to, to Bitcoin. He goes back quite a ways in Bitcoin. So good person, but people also don't know that he's a good teacher. Um, he's actually like a good speaker and explainer and which is impressive Great. because when you're, you're smart, you're not always able to, uh, teach things at a lower level or at a beginner level. So it's, it's good. You had that. So you, you were learning a lot. Casey was mentoring you. You were learning as you're going. So before you started contributing to Ordinals, what was your experience and education level when it came to, to software development and computer science? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I study here in Munich at the, the Technical University of Munich, uh, computer science. Um, and I know all the theory and I've, I've coded some small stuff. Mostly before Rust, I was using uh, Golang or Go which is uh, also a systems programming, programming language. Um, and then of course, like university, you do like Java and C, C++, Python, OCaml and Haskell, like all kinds of different, like you learn everything on a very like shallow level. Um, but I didn't ha have any like real open source uh, experience other than like small stuff. So this was kind of the first time I really um, contributed to like a proper and like contributed regularly to a proper open source uh, project. Um, but yeah, I learned quickly and I had like, even more importantly, I had a great teacher, like Casey's incredible. Like he can break stuff down, like very complex things. He has a very structured way of thinking, uh, very, uh, of breaking things down and, and going until you've understand it. So breaking it apart into the simplest pieces and then until you understand it and then building it up again. Um, so yeah, I guess I just was very lucky. Uh, that's why I could learn so fast. Yeah. So besides the, the technical university, you were at Casey university. I, I, I always said, uh, I was Casey's apprentice or apprentice programmer. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's a lot of hours. So how were you able to spend so much time? Is this while you were in school? So you were doing school and coding yeah, as well with Casey doing it next to school. I didn't have so much to do for, for school during that semester. So I had some, some extra time. Um, and that's, that's how I can, could, can, could have, uh, could, could spend time, uh, coding on that. Um, yeah. And, and what uh, is it about decision I've ever done? Like, oh yeah, yeah, it was very flexible. Like I had to work in the evenings, but I'm night owl anyways. So it kind of uh, worked out for me. Um, I don't think I could have had a better and better experience doing like an internship or working at some German company and some like IT department. I think that would have been way, way worse. Um, this was like the, uh, ultimate, um, speed run of learning rust and open source development. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And, you know, Bitcoin as, as a code base, there's, there's a lot to it. You taught, you mentioned lightning, but there's so much to do. Um, what distinguishes ordinals compared to everything else that Bitcoin can do where you saw it as something interesting and an opportunity? Mm -hmm. Uh, it was kind of something new, you know, um, mm -hmm. um, like 
programming on Bitcoin or working with Bitcoin is not easy. It has a very uh, idiosyncratic kind of structure and how it works is, is not very well understood. Um, there's also no kind of easy programming language for Bitcoin, like in, in Ethereum. If you want to build an app, you build something in Solidity, which is like its own little thing. There's a thousand tutorials on YouTube to kind of learn uh, Solidity and build Ethereum apps. But in, in Bitcoin, there's it's it's more hidden. You can find them. There's really good resources, but it's not as as prevalent as easy to find. Um, so I definitely say it's it's more difficult to to do build stuff on on Bitcoin. And what attracts me to to ordinals like or the idea of ordinals, I think um, I really like the the um, like what really got me hooked first was the the rare sats. Um, so the first thing I contributed to was this this clock that kind of shows. Uh, the different cycles that Bitcoin has. And these cycles also define the different kind of traits that uh, single Satoshis have. Um, and that kind of, I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. Like you can like collect um, Satoshis that are kind of have cool quirky um, properties or have a cool history um, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of scav or scavenge hunting um, for, for cool things. And then that was kind of, inscriptions weren't a thing back then when I started. So it was only sats and kind of tracking sats and, and these rare sats. And then as we started like getting into the code and get, kind of trying to make inscriptions work, I thought like, oh man, this is really cool. Like now you have actually this kind of digital artifact that works together seamlessly with uh, how Bitcoin works without having to fork anything or uh, having to wait for any new, new feature in, in Bitcoin itself. It just like works on top. Um, and yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that, I found that very cool. Yeah, a lot of people forget that it, it sort of starts with the Satoshis and it wasn't like happened over a week where, you know, able to define and search for specific sats and their characteristics. Most people, I think, when they think of the word ordinals, they think of the inscriptions and the art or whatever it might be. And I yeah. think that's a strength of Bitcoin that it uses the UTXO model, number mm -hmm. one. But number two, what you can't replicate is the history of Bitcoin. So what makes these Satoshis unique is they maybe they were like in a block mined by satoshi himself or maybe it's the first satoshi of the first block or the the halving so how much does bitcoin's history um what are we in 13 14 years or so of bitcoin what is mm -hmm. about bitcoin's history and utxo model that makes it so unique in terms of being able to do what we can do compared to like ethereum or other chains um the UCXO model, what makes it, I mean, with, with Ethereum, the problem with, I don't want to get like into the debate with like Ethereum versus, versus Bitcoin. Like every one of these models has kind of different trade-offs. Um, in Ethereum, you have like global state and you have free entry bugs and stuff like that. And the UTXO model is a very kind of, is more private as well. Um, I don't think there's anything like intrinsically, um, that attracted me to the, the UTXO model in itself. It's kind of just how Bitcoin works. Um, but when you kind of understand it, it's kind of elegant. Um, it's very nice how it works. Um, but yeah, I don't really have anything that specifically made the UTXO model more attractive than, than yeah. say any other model. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've heard that, that people say that Bitcoin is, you know, elegant in its simplicity. And maybe that's even how Satoshi put it. Um, but yet it's also hard to, to work with. So why is it hard to work with? I know it's intimidating for a lot of developers that, that I've talked mm -hmm. to. Is that because when it was developed back in you know, 2008 and supposedly Satoshi had been working on it for several years, is it because it was, that was like an old way of doing things? Was it because Satoshi was kind of like his own quirky way of it? What specifically is it that makes Bitcoin a little bit harder compared to other blockchains or just other open source projects? I honestly don't know. I think um, it could also be just a problem of mm, the right resources. Like I know there's really good Bitcoin resources, um, but yeah, I think in, in Bitcoin, you have to think about more of the whole, like you have to really dive deep and think of the whole system. Whereas maybe in Ethereum, you can just work on the solidity code, like abstraction layer, and that's it. You don't have to think about anything else. Whereas in, in Bitcoin, you have to think a little bit deeper and understand more of the intricacies. Um, so maybe that's kind of a bigger hurdle. But other than that, I don't have a strong opinion, like why or strong reason for why one is easier than, than or more difficult than the other, other than, um, yeah, that it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, that's the nature it of it. Yeah, yeah. And what are you seeing from developers who first come in and start contributing? What do you see as their, uh, two things what do you see that they're excited about it and what do you see as their their challenges to be able to contribute and, and understand it um i mean a lot of it is they um are still trying to since so since inscriptions work on ordinals the first thing kind of people have to kind of understand is how ordinals work and then kind of how ordinals are birthed how they are created so a lot of time they don't understand that like an ordinal is created or is assigned its uh, its 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 number uh, when it is mined. So through the uh, subsidy, the the block subsidy, uh, and then then you have to kind of know that kind of the block subsidy decreases exponentially over the next hundred years, and um, that's kind of how you get like a lot of satoshis that have already been mined, and then you get consecutively less. I think some people don't really think about how bitcoins are created. Uh, and that kind of since ordinals is very much tied to how Bitcoin is created, since they're, they're assigned a Satoshi number at their kind of creation. That's kind of, I think, the first thing that people glance over or don't get at the first try. They just see like, oh, I can put like data on the blockchain. I just want to push some some JPEGs um, on, onto Bitcoin and like use it as, as, as ever. But you kind of have to understand these things. But that's, I also think, what's very beautiful about ordinals and inscriptions is because it pulls you pulls you into the rabbit hole. So you see it for the first time and then you're like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? And then it kind of pulls you into trying to understand how Bitcoin works. It's kind of a nice little, um, uh, what is it called? Nerd sniping, you know, people want to understand how it works. So they, uh, yeah, they, they see something and then they go to the, as far as they can go to be able to understand it. I mean, I had a friend, um, he's a very talented kind of developer and, and, and hacker, and he, had been exposed to Bitcoin, I mean, maybe in 2014 or 15, but he didn't really believe in it and kind of forgot about it. And then I told him about inscriptions and ordinals, and then I kind of got him to really dive deep into it. And then he would like, for like weeks, he would be like, wow, oh, but like, how, what is SegWit? Like, how does Taproot work? Like all of these like little details, like what is the, what is the, uh, uh, 
the segwit discount like all of these like small little details he would like ask me because he was kind of pulled back into bitcoin and so that was all through kind of ordinals and he was like oh damn this is interesting i want to know again and so now he's up to date up to date again i still have to get him to contribute to rust uh to the code base but he doesn't know a lot of rust so he hasn't contributed yet but uh maybe i can with a little bit more convincing yeah that's what i love about ordinals is you takes you back to the basics because like you said it started starts with you know mining and the creation of you know satoshis and utxo and so <clears throat> unlike so many other <clears throat> excuse me unlike so many other things with with bitcoin you really start at the fundamental layer and it's actually otherwise might be boring for some people but when you understand like what you can do with it later on with inscriptions and and numerical values all of a sudden i think it becomes more interesting to people of the block subsidy and how it diminishes over time and why that is and yeah, yeah. just right and and then just people there's a lot of people who love art and create creativity and so that yeah, yeah. draws people in yeah i definitely think what with with bitcoin or generally like when you have an asset that you can kind of hold basically or that you can truly own like a piece of gold in your hand. You have to kind of get used to how that works. And in Bitcoin, how you do that is like you get a hardware wallet and you write down your seed and you kind of take responsibility and like carry your own risk in kind of storing uh, this this asset that you have. And I think what's, what ordinals can, can kind of bring as well is that people get used to kind of having something in their hand that they, they value and then like like actually like try to like in their mind kind of t touch and kind of feel what it means like what bitcoin means as 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 a as a value as as a as a money um and i think inscriptions can kind of bring that into uh, can can kind of further that so that people um yeah just get an intuitive feeling for what it means to to actually truly own uh, own a, a digital asset um yeah so yeah I think I think that I don't know if I express myself very like elegantly here, but I think you can yeah. just <laughs> No, absolutely. I, I think you said it well. Once people have it like sort of it's more of a tangible thing, or maybe it's something that they could at least in their mind visualize. Um yeah. because otherwise it's sort of abstract. Yeah, I mean Bitcoin in itself is very abstract. Um and you kind of have to buy into it and accept this abstraction and this weird thing as something that is valuable. But when once you do, it gives you like it's very powerful, um, and I think inscription could could do the same. Um, so yeah, and 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 for that, I'm thinking at some point would be I think people are already doing this. So you can like there's these wallets that work on like cards. Like I think there's multiple people. So you put where the private key is actually on like a small little card, and you could put like an inscription onto this card. And then you can pass it around. And then the, they actually own the inscription just by passing it around because the actual private key is on this thing. So it's like passing around a piece of gold. Uh, and then when you hold it, you own it. Um, so I think people have already started doing that. But I think that's a, that's a, I think I should try to make that work with the wallet. That's a good idea. Um, and see how you could inscribe like inscriptions onto like a card. Uh, I think you're muted. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. I'll have to take a look at that and see see what that's about. Something yeah, that like, I ran across. Yeah, cold yeah, card produces these SATS cards, I think. Um, and you can put Bitcoin on it. It like you could also, of course, now put an inscription on it, but then sending it, it's not ordinal aware. So that would be a little bit risky. But if you integrate that nicely, you could have like the same way you pass around this like the SATS card with the Bitcoin, you could pass around inscriptions. Um yeah. 
Oh, that's what it is. Cold card. The the the, the, the South cards. Yeah, exactly. South cards. Okay, that's South cards. Called, yeah. I'll, I'll take a look at that. Or the yeah, something. Yeah. Open dime is also one thing. It's like the small little looks like a USB stick, and then you can like uh, one time use kind of send it. To, yeah, actually hold yeah. the. the we yeah. just got to get cold card to become truly open source, not source available. But that's another topic for another oh, day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another topic for another day. Yeah. Speaking of like cards, I saw that DZ, Danny DZ, he has these, they've made these sort of trading cards, but with ordinal names. So a lot of people don't know this, but every, you know, Satoshi ordinal has, has a name assigned that's been generated and the ones that exist are shorter are longer and over time to become um, shorter i think is what it is but anyways so what danny did is he found names that actually mean something like mm -hmm. uh actual words and then they created artwork for that thing for yeah. that name right to visualize that have you seen seen those not yet but that's great um i love that um can you like send me the link later or uh blend yeah, it in yeah. After. I'll send it to you on Twitter, but yeah, it's, it's really neat because they, they took these ordinal names and then visualized it in art, which is mm. another cool way that, you know, I've been talking about how by having it be something visual, tangible that people can see because names haven't been used really for any application yet. These actual ordinal names, not dot sats, but the actual names of the Satoshis. Yeah. And I hope more people start to use that. I remember when I, when Casey first told me about this when he told me directly not just i was following him on twitter but uh in december of last year he messaged me about this and he knew that i was working on my app trajan which has uh you know blockchain bitcoin naming system and he suggested mm -hmm. hey maybe you could use you know these names for people it's not yeah. quite practical for a lot of applications yet um especially since a lot of the good names you know aren't are hard to get but i think yeah, it's would... a another example yeah, 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 that's a, it's a great example. And like we chose, or Casey chose the, the way the names are generated in kind of reverse order so that the good names are not all gone in the first couple blocks. And so they will slowly kind of will be revealed or will be mined. Uh, and then, I mean, then they can be like a, a DNS system. So you can, I mean, it's a very clunky one, but also very, um, it also very uh, resilient and decentralized mm -hmm. one. Where basically, if you own the SAT, then you, I don't know, inscribe something on that SAT with that name, and then that's the DNS record. Um, that's like very long term. And the, the, the reason we chose the reverse order is so that there's enough time for like the markets to um, be created around ordinals so that then miners kind of split like interesting names and SATs out, and then you can trade these single SATs. Um, so either in a hundred years, there will be a thriving market for these names or they will be non, no market at all. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I, I, I searched for a few different words and names. I saw Ragnar's there, but my full name is not available. Ragnar Leaf Racer. It's too many letters. So unfortunately yeah. my first and last name's not available. I don't know if you've looked for your, for your name. I think, yet. yeah, I think I have, uh, yeah, you could just in ordinals.com, you can just like in the search bar, you can put your name in and then the SAT will, will pop up. Um, I think we also, ordinal, we have this rare.txt, which is, I think just a, um, what was this again? I forgot. Um, yeah. And anyways, but, uh, you can, yeah, yeah, just type in your name and then you can see if there's a, uh, 
there's a Satoshi and when it will be mined. So my name, I think, will be mined in 2082. So yeah, 2082. over 80 years old. Um, when well, my name we'll is put mined. it on your Put, put it on your calendar. So if you yeah, ever have kids, or maybe my grandkids will buy it for me in, in my memory, and then, then put it on my tombstone or whatever. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I almost wish you guys had done it the other way around. So like the good names are all taken up, and then they can be traded. Because but I the problem with that is that yeah. all the good names, because the block subsidy was so large in the first blocks, all of the good names would have gone. I mean, we're already at like 19 million uh, Bitcoin mm -hmm. mined. So all of the good ones would have been kind of locked into the first couple of blocks that like belong to oh, yeah. uh, Satoshi. So they would, they would be like not accessible. At least now they will be accessible in the future. Um, yeah. so yeah, that was the, the idea. <laughs> that makes sense. Unless Satoshi starts, you know, moving his, his Bitcoins around a lot of names are exactly. Or like, yeah, we get quantum computers and, uh, we break elliptic curve cryptography and, uh, people will be um spending satoshi's uh bitcoin yeah we'll see so it, it was good it's just we have to wait you know unfortunately but you know bitcoin uh is is a long-term project i love how bitcoin builders think of it in terms of like even decades like you guys have thought about this in terms of decades not next year so it makes bitcoin so durable i i love names i mean i could talk about that for a long time but just uh we are going to have danny on the podcast so when that, that comes out that, that'll yeah, be a good time yeah, to i'll definitely watch see what he's up to um, yeah, yeah. He, do, he does Definitely a lot. Definitely going to get more into um, hang out more on Twitter and get get back into the discussion. I have more time now to um, yeah contribute to Ord, kind of get into the ecosystem and like see where it's at. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see what people are doing. I want to go back for a second to the start of the conversation where we talked about what you do as a maintainer um, mm -hmm. and. I'd like to hear from you what has been maybe the most like consequential or difficult problem that you guys had to deal with and ultimately decide because at some point you have to decide right and so one thing I'm thinking of maybe this is off but like cursed inscriptions off by one can you use I, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I can talk about that um, yeah could you explain to people what that was how you guys decided what you decided what was the yeah, process so yeah I think the the biggest mistake was um creating inscription numbers so we were working on inscriptions and I think it was either Casey or me probably Casey um was like ah oh, it would be cool to kind of assign inscriptions numbers because they're kind of sequential and you can just you know assign them a number and i was like yeah i mean sounds cool like give inscriptions a number um and then what we did is kind of we we wanted to get out inscriptions so it was kind of either january or february and then we wanted to kind of get the version one out or version 0.01 .01 so that people could kind of start using it and we took like some shortcut we um we took a transaction and only kind of looked at the first inscription in that transaction. We just looked at one and then um, assigned it an inscription number and then uh, inscription ID and then sent it out. And then what kind of happened, because a lot of people started using it, is that inscriptions would not last uh, land kind of in the, there would be multiple inscriptions per transaction. Mm -hmm. And since we had this kind of little shortcut where we would only like look at the first one, uh, we would kind of ignore all the uh, inscriptions below that, and of course not assign them a number, which meant that they were 
not recognized at that point. And then the numbers, if you would add them back, they would get out of whack. So they would like have to reorder the numbers, um, reorder the numbers. And then, um, yeah, people kind of expected the numbers. And I think people still use kind of the numbers as the main identifier. Um, so we couldn't kind of get, we couldn't risk people, you know, changing the numbers and then people kind of sending inscriptions they didn't want to send because they were using the numbers instead of what is correct is uh, the inscription ID. Inscription ID is unique and it's the better way of kind of using inscriptions. They, but all people were really fixated on the numbers. And so, yeah, um, because of that, we had to kind of find a way to get the inscriptions that we ignored, which were valid inscriptions, um, kind of give them a number. And so we decided to give them a negative number. I mean, at some point we were thinking of just like getting rid of numbers completely, but I think, uh, people would have not taken kindly to that. And, uh, yeah, the original mistake was just assigning numbers in the first place, but yeah, so we had to kind of assign them a negative number and that's kind of where these cursed inscriptions comes from. Cursed are just those inscriptions we did not recognize before, which were valid. Um, and they're cursed because yeah, they have a negative number. Um, yeah, and that's kind of was a very difficult decision of how to make it work. And then also in the code base, it's very tricky. There's de many different cases of cursed inscriptions, um, many different edge cases. Um, that was a, a difficult thing. That's, that's one of the things, the first things I did when I became lead maintainer, um, because everyone was, it was a very controversial topic and I just had to make a decision and move forward. Um, and yeah, we, we started implementing cursed inscriptions. So there's still a couple of types of inscriptions we do not recognize. Um, and that'll be like an ongoing thing, but at some point we will, um, kind of have enumerated most of the inscriptions that we think are valid. Uh, and at that point we will kind of introduce a blessed era hmm. or a blessed block. And after that block, all the, all the new cursed inscriptions will get a positive number. So the old ones will keep their negative number and the new ones will be integrated into the normal kind of ordering. Um, yeah, and that'll probably be a conversation over the next couple of months when to kind of have this activation height or blessed era. Um, but yeah, like, like often things you're like path dependent. So sometimes you make a decision and you can't go back and the, the, the kind of decision we made was assigning inscriptions, inscription numbers. And now, yeah, you can't really roll it back, especially if you work in a distributed kind of system, like where everyone is running their own thing. And it's like a very big community running their own thing. It's not like I have my own little server and can do everything I want. As soon as it's out in the world, I have to kind of balance everything and see, um, what, what the best decision is, but, um, I'm okay with the decision we made, like how to fix it. Um, and we just have to kind of, yeah, figure out the details. So it's, yeah, I think it will be fine. Yeah. It sounded like, so you as a maintainer, then Casey and then everyone else, you know, you, you guys took into consideration different points of view. Um, I think you might've reached out to me once and asked me, you know, what I thought, and I'm sure lots of other people and me, I'm, I may be an ordinal extremist in the sense that I didn't care about numbers. 
I would have been fine with getting rid of numbers completely and yeah. just done, you know, transcription <laughs> ID. But I'm not like, I think probably a lot of people, especially people who are there for the inscription numbers and the art. And I think a lot of the early holders didn't want their number ruined. So they have a valid use case. So it's interesting how you guys navigated that and came up with, um, you know, the solutions and you don't make everyone happy, right? There are some people who wish you had done it differently and other people are very happy and there's people in yeah, between. I, mean, I think we made most people happy. I mean, there's still yeah. some like inscriptions uh, we haven't recognized yet, but I think that'll be a conversation. Like some will be recognized, some not. And if people aren't happy with the decision, they can always fork the repo start their own thing and then if most of the people switch over to that and think that's kind of the better way of doing it then they will do it like that and then maybe i will uh, then we will pull in that change but like um it's kind of a very rough consensus kind of thing uh you just have to make a decision and see where it goes and if you're unhappy with it you can fork it so um yeah yeah rough consensus is the key and that's how bitcoin has always worked um we'll see if there's ever a major um you know controversy in the sense that maybe will it ever happen that something is so dramatic in ordinals that someone will want to fork it and say we don't like how those guys have been doing it casey and raf and, and those other guys and girls and we're going to fork yeah. it and then they somehow gain share it's it's always possible you never know i mean yeah, saw, right and that's the yeah. fun that's the fun yeah, of it. Yeah. And, and the market decides well i think by talking about this what you've been doing as a maintainer and the kind of work and pressure that you that you're under and, and the other people making these decisions, having to listen to so many people yet understand the code, yet think about the long term, yet be practical. It's, it's, a, it's a lot. And, you know, this isn't, again, you don't work for like the Ordinals Corporation. It's an open source project. And mm -hmm. so it's, you're not paying like, you know, six figure salary to do this. So you guys started the Open Ordinals Institute uh, to kind of help support the open source contributors to ordinals. So can you tell us about the Open Ordinals Institute, the nonprofit that you guys started? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, in order to kind of like the, the goal with the broad goal with the Open Ordinals Institute is kind of get funding to support everything kind of going on with ORD and the ecosystem um, and do it in a manner that's like very like, like you like, that's a very normal way to support open source projects. So many, let's say, yeah, many open source projects have uh, foundations um, or some kind of nonprofit that kind of gets money from big companies using uh, the, the open source software and then distributes it to contributors or to lead maintainers or to people kind of uh, maintaining kind of this open source piece of code. And so, yeah, we just copied that model from the existing way of doing things. And um, yeah, founded the Open Ordinals Institute. Um, we called it Institute because you know we wanted to we didn't want to use foundation, just uh, do it a little bit different. Um, and yeah, and on the institute at the moment, it's like we have a board, um, and then some. Uh, we have like the minimum amount, like we have four board members, and then three kind of in the management, and then. Um, yeah, we've and then we mostly hold our money in like a multi-sig and then distribute it mostly to me at the moment uh, to kind of, uh, yeah, build or out. But depending on how much money we collect, we, you know, I would love to get more like paid uh, contributors working with me. So I'm uh, kind of, you know, build a small team to make this work and make it nice. There's a lot yeah, of stuff. I'm glad, 
I'm glad you guys did that. I mean, it's it's overdue. It, it takes a while. We had Erin as our first guest on the Ordinals podcast. We launched with her. She's she's great, and I know she's part yeah. of it. So who's on the team of the Ordinal, Open Ordinals Institute? What do they do there? Okay, so the uh, the board at the moment is uh, Casey, Erin, uh, Ordinali, and, uh, and me. And then I think you have to have minimum of three roles. So you need a president, a treasurer, and a secretary. Uh, Aaron is the president at the moment. Um, Ornelli is the uh, treasurer, and I'm the secretary. Um, doesn't really mean anything in practice, um, but that's kind of what you have to have as as a as a as a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, we mostly just work in Bitcoin. So we have a multisig, two out of four multisig, and people can donate to an address, maybe yeah, can blend it in or something, the the website or something, and then. Um, yeah, we distribute funds from there and try to make this a sustainable kind of effort. Um, as you said, like we're thinking long term, um, building like Bitcoin is thinking long term, Ordinals shares that DNA. Um, we want to build cool stuff long term, get cool artists, get cool culture, get developers. And that's a good kind of structure to to manage that. Yeah, I'm glad you guys set that up because before it was you had you always had that address that people can donate to, which was good. But just having a more structured thing, especially nonprofit, you know, if, if a company yeah. is going to donate a certain amount, US companies they can write that off for their taxes and that actually does influence decisions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. most most definitely. So it's good, even though it's like who wants to run, you know, a nonprofit, you know, it's not as, as fun as doing some software, but it's actually good you guys did that gave some legitimacy to it i was i was happy to see you know people are contributing to it is there anything you can you that you know offhand like uh big contributors any companies that you you mentioned that you know of um, um i have i have not looked at um i mean there was a lot when we announced it there was a lot of people on on twitter who announced that they're donating and i'm very thankful to all those people um i don't have any specific companies that i know of um but um you can yeah look at um, at Twitter and the open ordinals we kind of retreat and, and like and I try to also kind of write something when I see it I'll get I wasn't very active on Twitter the last like couple months um, but um, yeah I'll, I'll get back into it and then um, get a better overview who has uh, contributed or uh, donated um, yeah yeah that's yeah we lost you for a second there that's okay um, oh, okay yeah, so you were saying how you you got off Twitter for a bit, uh, kind of busy with other things, but you were saying you're gonna try to get more active. Yeah, exactly. So now, yeah, we have this formal structure. I'm more, um, I have more time now to work on Ord, um, and yeah, we'll we're gonna see, um, gonna form the ecosystem, see 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 where to go. There's a lot of things to do. Um, there's a lot of things in the code base. Um, that needs need to happen. A lot of features. People are anticipating parent-child reinscriptions. Um, there's also like some very standard, um, you know, low-level code maintenance. Looking at the database works, um, reorg resistance. There's yeah, a litany of stuff that has to be done. Uh, just has to be heads down and working from now. Yeah. So if people think that Ordinals is, is pretty close to being done, the protocol is is ready to ossify and you have all the features there, it's not true. There's so much work 
to do that you have to do and, and that other people have to do, other contributors. So it's good that you're set up now with the Open Ordinals Institute, had that structure in place. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned those things that, that uh, need to be done or are on the, the roadmap. Um, as we close out here, can you just tell us you know, where you are today with university and what your plans are for the next six months and, and even 12 months mm -hmm. out? So yeah, I'm I'm done for now uh, with with university. So the next month is going to be full time ord. Um, I will yeah be working on the code base. Uh, going to look at all the PRs that people have opened over the last couple of months that I haven't been able to get to. Um, gonna see yeah, gonna build a lot of features. Um, I'm also um, organizing a conference with a couple of others in uh, in Amsterdam. Um, just kind of also yeah, showcase new ordinals features. Um, and yeah, but the next six months will definitely be heads down working. Um, I'm probably going to be at some conferences like in, in Singapore, I'll be and at a conference. Um, and then of course, Amsterdam, the Bitcoin conference, I will be, I will also be in Berlin at like a more like a dev Bitcoin dev conference. Um, and then maybe also in Miami. There's another conference, Ord Basel. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm going to reach out, get into the ecosystem, see what people are working on, and then see how I can build the tools necessary for people to create cool art and create stuff on 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 on, on Bitcoin and on ordinals. Um, yeah, just have to get to know the. I have to like, I have to see people working with it, and then I can like better decide what direction to take. You know, I need I need the feedback, and I think uh, yeah, that will be. Yeah, doing that for the next couple of months. Well, it's exciting to see you're done with university. It's exciting now you, you'll have a little, maybe more time to devote to things and um, get kind of more interactive on the social side of things, uh, Twitter and of course, Ordacord. So we, you know, I encourage people to get on GitHub, uh, talk to Raf on Twitter, give him your thoughts, but more importantly, try to contribute something, try to give positive, you know, useful feedback. Because uh, I know you guys really pay attention to that. Well, Rap, this has been a great conversation. I'm so glad that we talked. I mean, it's really, I think, hopefully, will educate people about how, you know, the, where the code base is and how it's maintained and how decisions are made and who's behind it. Um, so I'll close out with one final question for you, which I asked all my guests, which is, do you have one inscription that you own that you would never sell or transfer? And if so, why? Um... I mean, sure. I have a couple of the first hundred inscriptions, um, or I have one of the first ten inscriptions. I'll probably never sell that. Um, so um, yeah, and of and and the others inscriptions are probably also. Sorry, um, kind of. Um, sorry about that. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, I have one of the uh, top ten inscriptions that I probably won't sell. Um, yeah, and, and a couple of the top 100, like we're bringing out like a parent child feature. Maybe I will use one of those like top 100 inscriptions as, as my parents, you know, as the kind of global thing to kind of define my on-chain inscription path hierarchy. Um, but other than that, um, I don't think I will, I will sell any of those. They're um, high-end art, high-end digital collectibles. 
digital yeah. artifacts. Digital artifacts. Sitting on, exactly. sitting on the, some early digital artifacts. And what's great about parent child is that he can build off of those. So that's, that's really exciting. Well, again, Ralph, thanks for coming on the Ordinals podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please rate and review our show. Subscribe to the Ordinals podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite app. And follow us on Twitter at The Ord Pod. Drop us a line at podcasts at ord.media for topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to interview. Ordinals 2024 conference is taking place in Nashville. Early bird passes are available now. Visit ord.media and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening to the Ordinals podcast, produced by Ord Media.